Welcome to Force Points to the Point Cybersecurity Podcast. Each week, join Eric Trexler and Erica Pierce to explore the latest in government cybersecurity news and trending topics. Always covered in 15 minutes or less. Now, let's get to the point. Hi, and welcome back to To The Point Cybersecurity. This is episode number 20. Um, you're, I'm your host, Erica Pierce, along with my co-host, Eric Trexler. How are you doing, Eric? Hey, Erica. I'm doing well. Can you believe we're at episode number 20? <laughs> I feel old. <laughs> well, at least oh, wait a minute. I am. <laughs> No, no, just uh, experience, as we like to call it. So, <laughs> well, good. So this week we have a guest. We have Aaron Boyd joining us from NextGov. He's a senior editor there covering uh, technology issues in, in the federal government. Hi, Aaron. Hello. Hello, everyone out there. Uh, happy to be here. Yeah, yeah. Thank you so much for joining us. And we have a couple of uh, topics that we want to touch on to today, Aaron, because um, mm-hmm. you, you definitely are always writing about uh, the world of, of technology and the world of cybersecurity in the federal space. So I um, want to kind of just jump into a, a few things you've recently written about, if that's OK. Mm-hmm. Sure. Erica, if I could, before we get started, Aaron, how did you pick technology? How did you pick uh, cybersecurity? So technology definitely picked me. I'm a, a lifelong nerd, uh, built my first Frankenstein computer from spare parts uh, in, in grade school. And, you know, it's uh, it's always been a fascination of mine. It's certainly the future. So uh, as a reporter, uh, I feel like a lot of us end up picking specialty areas uh, versus general reporting. So uh, IT was a, was a nice fit for me. And uh, as I was doing a lot of the IT reporting here in, in Washington, uh, in D.C., Definitely cybersecurity is, is jumping out as a major issue for, for federal agencies and, and everywhere, of course. So you really can't have the IT discussion without without talking about cyber. Okay, let's let's have that discussion then. Sure. That's awesome. Okay. So let's first start with um, a recent draft policy that came out from the administration. It's the uh, Trusted Internet Connection Policy, also known as a TIC 3.0. And so the reason why there's this program in place, the TIC program, was for the um, the federal government to consolidate the number of external internet connections that government agencies have. And so I was doing a little bit of um, research in, into this issue. And, you know, I was, um, I was surprised to learn that, for example, the DHS has identified 228 different cloud services that are being used by agencies. And so when you have all of these um, points coming into the networks, that causes issues. And so that's the point of this, this tick policy. But the other issue is that it does um, it does make it harder for agencies to migrate to the cloud, which we also know is a priority. And so, Aaron, you recently wrote about this in terms of um, what this framework looks like, the impact it's having on government agencies. Talk a little bit more about what you know what what your thoughts are and and what direction we're seeing the the, the program go, and if it's sort of addressing some of the challenges that the agencies have sort of uh, raised in terms of that the migration to cloud. Sure. So TIC is uh, is one of those interesting areas. Uh, the last time TIC was updated, TIC 2.0, was in 2008. Uh, and so it's it's been a long time coming to, to get to 3.0. Uh, but as you said, the, the purpose of it is to ensure that when agencies, uh, agency employees are connecting to the Internet, they're using a trusted connection, hence the name, and not getting spoofed, uh, man-in-the-middle attacks, things like that, that, that could get in the way. So as you mentioned, though, when it comes to cloud and, and modern networks, that old framework 
doesn't really apply as much anymore. So what they're doing with the latest iteration, the new the new draft that's out from the Office of Management and Budget, uh, is looking at several case studies, examples of how feds are using the internet, where they're connecting, and what is the best way to secure those connections. So right now, it's a draft policy update uh, that is, uh, once finalized, going to actually kick the ball over to DHS, who uh, is then going to develop these use case scenarios as, as standard examples for how agencies can connect securely. And the, the uh, comment period actually is still open on that draft policy until February 8th. Oh, did they ex- did they extend it, Aaron? They did. It was one of okay. the ones that got extended due to the shutdown. The shutdown. So they got they, okay. they gave it a few extra weeks. Ah, uh, the shutdown, prolonging uh, or delaying cyber activities everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> well, and and so I think that's that's interesting. You know, Eric and I have talked about this um, a few times in terms of how how do you protect the network perimeter when also when the boundaries are essentially disappearing, right? And so yeah. I think that's the balance, the challenge that these types of policies really have to deal with. And, you know, uh, back in September, I uh, spoke with Mark Bunn, who leads this effort uh, for DHS, and uh, he's talking about that exact problem, right? Because most of the tools that agencies are going to use to ensure they have a secure connection aren't really going to change, right? Uh, uh, He had a great quote, uh, yes, we have a hammer, yes, we're still hammering nails, but now suddenly we're like, what are we making out of these hammers and nails? So the general security architecture for agencies isn't necessarily going to change in the latest update to the policy. What it is is how you use those things like firewalls and antivirus and DMARC and other uh, aspects of cybersecurity in this era now where you have – it's not just the, the, that, that the perimeter is disappearing in a way that now we have – unlimited perimeter, right? Every end device uh, is is now computing and everything's connected to the cloud. So when you don't have a set perimeter to protect, how do you use all these tools that you have to still make sure that you're safe? Right. And I saw that the uh, some of the use cases suggested are, are cloud support for mm-hmm. SD-WAN or software-defined wide area networks. So remote offices way out outside of Washington, D.C. Or, or traditional areas with a couple users maybe even have trusted connectivity back. Remote users connecting from home. Certainly th- since 2008, cloud, remote office, wide area networks, and the uh, remote users connecting from home, those those scenarios, those use cases have, have increased in prevalence. Mm-hmm. Time for an update. Yeah. <laughs> well, and I think it'll, it'll be interesting to see what what these um, new use cases that DHS does, you know, that they put out, because obviously a lot has happened. A lot of changes have occurred since uh, 2008 when they when the last policy came out. So that in fact, I think that's that's one of the big things that they're hoping for during the common period. So if you look at the draft policy, uh, they list. Uh, let's see here. I have it pulled up here. They list four different large areas, cloud, as, as you mentioned, Eric, uh, specifically, they want to look at infrastructure as a service, software as a service, and email as a service. Uh, they want to look at uh, agency branch offices, as you mentioned as well. Uh, so, you know, if you're not the headquarters office, what are you doing? Remote users for telework and the like, and then how the traditional tick from, from years past has been applied to and can still be applied going forward. Yeah, I mean, the initial concept, as I understood it, was really to funnel all Internet access through n number of gateways to to really inspect that traffic. I think with encryption, 
that we've seen in the last five years really becoming prevalent for that traffic, that becomes much more challenging. And and we at Force Point, I would I would say, definitely look at getting closer to the end user, which sounds like that's what they're doing too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you have to. I mean, yeah. really difficult to inspect encrypted traffic. Even more difficult to inspect traffic that doesn't go through your dedicated connection. But you know, in today's day and age, you, you can't just say you have to be at your desk to connect mm-hmm. to the internet, right? You have to open it up. You have to allow people to work where they need to work. Otherwise, what's the point of all this technology? No, you're right. I mean, 2008, that was a year after the iPhone came out. Really, the uh, the, the uh, proliferation of the smartphone, remote connectivity, remote access is probably the default these days in many cases. Yeah. Well, on a, a sidebar, I, I kind of miss the days when you could only just work at your desk. <laughs> Yeah, no more snow days. Right, right, right. I mean, I I just got off of a six-hour flight, and the Wi-Fi was uh, bumpy in certain parts, and I was getting irritated about the fact that I could not work while I was on the plane. So 2008, you just had to, you know, really just sit back and enjoy those types of situations. So (laughs) Keep hoping. I'm not sure they're coming back here. No, I don't think it is. I don't think it is. Okay, Aaron, so let's pivot to another area that you've recently wrote, you've recently written about. Um, So you had an article that came out on February 5th that um, I'm just going to read the, the title because I, I think I like the title quite a bit. It says former <laughs> former official says throwing more bodies into cybersecurity won't help. <laughs> and so really here you're talking about some of the cybersecurity workforce issues that we, um, you know, we hear a lot of discussion about, especially right now. Uh, we're post shutdown where there's been also talks um, about the impact the shutdown will have on the recruitment um, in various areas of government, including cybersecurity security, which has definitely been um, a challenge. So talk a little bit about, um, you know, this this former FBI official, what he said in the article, because his his um, examples and sort of uh, <laughs> um, case studies, what, what have you, that he gave, I thought were, were quite compelling. And when you think about it, it's not about just bringing tons of more people into the industry, right? Right. So and, and I think it's important to preface these comments and this story uh, with that last statement you made, right? This is about the number of cybersecurity professionals in the industry writ large. Mm-hmm. It's, it's uh, interesting. I actually published a story uh, today that is all about a survey of federal IT professionals who say that they don't have enough staff and that's their biggest problem. So that's actually a separate issue, right? This is, can the federal government uh, recruit and re- retain people? That That is a singular issue that the government has. Then when you look Wider, though, one of the big silver bullets that people always talk about is the need to get more to, to, to increase the number of cybersecurity professionals in the sector. Right. Uh, there's there's been a lot of numbers thrown around. The one I cite in the story uh, is that there's three million ci- needed cyber professionals worldwide. That, that that's the gap. Stephen uh, Chabinsky, who is a former uh, director of the FBI Cyber Division, and he was also a senior advisor to the director of national intelligence while he was in government, he was speaking at an event the other day uh, where he says that's the wrong way to look at it when you're talking about the, the, the larger sector. If you just talk about throwing bodies at the problem, as, as our headline said, uh, that's not addressing the root cause of why we have so many issues in cybersecurity. So uh, one of the, one of the as you said, he had some colorful quotes that he threw out. One of the ones that I, I thought was great was uh, he said, it's like having an arsonist in the neighborhood and saying, we don't need to, to get the arsonist, let's get more firefighters. 
I right? love that so, one also. Yeah, that was yeah, a good one. Just, <laughs> yeah, the, the whole idea being, as he was putting it, that that industry, businesses, uh, everyday citizens are on the front lines of this cyber war, as many like to call it. And that's not the way it should be. Another, another uh, version he used was referencing the water crisis in Flint, Michigan. You, you wouldn't expect the people to take control over cleaning their water. That's why they pay taxes. They want it done at the reservoir level, right? They want the, when the water gets, this is a, a collective thing that, that the community should be taking care of, not an individual thing. So his point when it comes to cybersecurity is it's the same issue. If you focus on just throwing more people at it, then you're focused on uh, the the right of boom side of things, right? Where the events have happened and we need to clean it up or we know that there's a crisis and we need to strengthen our defenses. Those aren't bad things to think about, but his point was it's distracting from what he believes we need to be thinking about, which is you need to start the root cause. Why are these attacks happening and how can we harden our systems overall to mitigate this crisis? Okay, so what do we do? <laughs> well, he didn't have too many uh, uh, great ideas that he shared at the conference I was at. But he was talking about a uh, recent tabletop exercise and, and subsequent report from the uh, Foundation for Defending Democracies. And they go through quite a lot of options for uh, not just how, like how to improve information sharing, which is another one of those ones that gets talked about as a silver bullet but probably isn't really one, uh, but how to improve getting the industry to share more with government and the like, and what can be done to rejigger the frameworks for how government supports private industry to really get to the heart of the problem and, and stop these attacks. I, I love the premise of the uh, of the article here. I, I love what he's saying. The, the challenge is, what do you do? Right. I mean, the industry's had whitelisting for years, which was a good way to harden the systems to only do what they were able to do. The the problem is the adversary is always going to find a way in because we have something they want. There, the, there, there are a ton of a multitude of challenges. You know, when you look at the nation state problem, that you know, the, it's 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 always more cost effective to steal its intellectual property than to create it. Right. So as long as they feel as someone feels they can do that, they'll do that. If you look at hacktivists, if you look at, you know, uh, I don't know, uh, organized crime, anybody, as long as it's cheaper for them and, and not just cheaper financially, but cost penalties, jail time, whatever it may be, as long as it's cheaper for them to steal it or to do something malicious or there's a there's a there's a there's an interest for them and they can do it, they can get away with it. They're going mm -hmm. to do that. So what do you do? Yeah, and, and extrapolate that problem to national security secrets, uh, you know, classified research intel, uh, critical infrastructure if you're, if you're doing uh, traditional warfare or even just economic warfare. Right? These are things where, though, for an adversary, that's priceless. So you can't make it expensive enough to dissuade China from trying to steal, uh, you know, the, the next uh, – big tanker uh, designs or something like that. So I, I think you're, you're right for a lot of the, the lower level stuff, the, the basic economics, the even up to like Fortune 500 companies and the like, we can make the, uh, the value proposition too high, so it's not worth it for them. But when we get to critical infrastructure and national security, uh, they're going to keep trying no matter how much it costs. 
Well, I think even when you get to the consumer, I mean, mm. if you can steal a, a, a hundred thousand logins, it makes it profitable for them. Mm. If somebody wants to take the DNC offline mm -hmm. and there's value in that, they'll find a way to do that. And I, I agree with you. Yeah. It doesn't and make sense to hire more firefighters. Yeah. By the way, we don't have enough firefighters. We will never have enough firefighters. It's absolutely the wrong way to look at the problem. Mm. I just don't know what the answer is, right? We, we need to automate. I, I believe that is a, is a critical um, capability we need to enable. We probably need to do some more centralization and get more control and understanding of our environment, but that's certainly not foolproof either. But you're, you're absolutely right. We're not going to get enough firefighters. They don't exist and they never will. And on the other side of the coin, anything designed to give someone access, right? The legitimate people access, someone else can get access to, right? There is no perfect security, uh, physical, cyber, or otherwise. So uh, unfortunately, I don't have any answers for you here. Uh, it's just, it's, it's an intractable problem where I think we can continue to get better. But until there are, you know, norms for this kind of thing where we say, uh, this is the way we do things and this is, this is what we're not going to allow. Yeah, it's going to keep happening. Aaron, I'd like to thank you because you just guaranteed podcast 21 and on. <laughs> yes. Job security. Thank Job you very security, much. Yes, we, sure. we don't we don't have any great answers either. It's a great way of looking at the problem. But but mm. as a society, we need to figure out how to do more with fewer firefighters. Yeah, no, and I, I, no, and I, I agree. And I think, you know, I, sometimes I feel like um, it, organizations, including the government, you, we gravitate towards the answers that just seem, um, you know, easier. And that's why perhaps it, that we, we tend to be gravitating towards let's just get more cybersecurity professionals. That's going to, you know, that's going to stop it. But obviously it, it's, it's not. And so it's really getting at the heart, the root of the problem. So that's why I like the firefighter analogy, because I this is that a, really makes it clear. This is a global problem, right? I mean, we're speaking in the context here of government, but everybody has this problem. Even the banks, the financial institutions that have the best and most capability today, they still have personnel challenges. There aren't enough people out there. Exactly. Yeah, and I, I don't think uh, Stephen's point was to say we don't need more people, right? Uh, to your point, we, we, we need firefighters, we need cybersecurity professionals, we need the people doing this work. Um, but it's just how you frame the problem, right? Should we, should we keep trying to douse the fire or find a way to stop the arsonists? That's exactly the way exactly. I read it. How, how can we do more with fewer firefighters? Yeah. You know, user training is probably the best thing we can do to to drive that problem to the edge and, and create prevent uh, credential theft, prevent impersonation of, of legitimate workers. Right. Yeah. A lot of user prevention, user education. Um, it's, it's, I, I don't know, it's not quite perfect on the analogy, right? We're not turning people into firefighters, but maybe we're preventing some of the fires. So we do you know, need less mm -hmm. firefighters. For me, that, that, that's my version of Chabinsky's issue. Uh, mine is, is getting user training, mm -hmm. right? Uh, user hygiene. I think you're entirely right. It's, it's necessary and good. Users are always the weak link. Um, but the users, especially in large organizations where an attacker gets so many bites at the apple with a phishing email, for instance, yeah. um, even people well-trained, they're going to get caught. Um, I can tell you, every uh, cybersecurity CEO I've spoken to has a story of when they've been phished. <laughs> um, so for me, that's, it's funny because that's actually, I take this, the same point. Yes, we need cyber hygiene. We need training. But if that's your focus, you're going to lose the game. Mm -hmm. We need to get to a place, you know, of, uh, of, of zero trust. 
uh, I like to talk about flipping um, Claude Shannon's maxim on its head, right? That the, the enemy knows the system as soon as you stand it up. Uh, the, the user, you should be able to create systems where the users don't have to know anything security-wise. If we can find a way to truly take the user's ignorance and, and inability to see the attack coming out of the equation, uh, I think that will get us further than talking more and more about user training. But again, until we find that that silver bullet, it's the best we've got. Well, the other thing we're looking at, we're studying hard here, not to not to do a commercial, but I, I really do believe in the idea is is looking at user profiling and, and creating risk scores. So you, the user, you, you do the best you can. Let's say you make a mistake. Let's say something happens. You have no idea. You, you closed a window and all of a sudden you launched a piece of malware. Um, you know, understanding the user behavior and looking for the abnormal abnormal event. And when you see that flagging so that you can deploy a firefighter or some level of automation. So the users do the best they can, but when they do make a mistake or something happens that they're not even aware of, it's out, it's out of uh, context. It's out of, it's, it's, it's not in the, in the, in the norm, if you will, for them. And then we're allowed to deploy firefighters. Well, we'll see. We'll see. <laughs> yeah, we'll see. It's we'll a start. Yeah, <laughs> I do love Stevens. I do love Stevens Thought Track because we're not going to have enough firefighters, and we hear it all the time from customers, whether they're commercial or government. I don't have enough people to solve this problem, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and I think you're never going to. So let's solve it a different way. Let's look at different techniques. Yeah, great article. I and uh, got to give props to, to Stephen for for framing it in a way that that everybody can digest and understand. Yeah. yeah, it was well done. Well done. Well, thank you, Aaron. We're actually just out of time. Um, where can our listeners find you if they want to, um, you know, on social media or uh, to uh, read some of the other uh, great issues that you've covered in the in the crazy world of cybersecurity and technology? <laughs> sure. Most of my days I spend uh, way too much time on Twitter at uh, federal underscore IT. So federal IT, you'll find me there. Well, wow, how'd you uh, get that handle? You must have had it for a long time. I, I jumped right on it when I when I first started reporting <laughs> on this stuff wow. and uh, got lucky. <laughs> Uh, and then uh, you can find my my work daily on nextgov.com, uh, where where we we talk about federal IT issues uh, writ large, everything from acquisition to cyber to modernization. Great articles. Thank Excellent. you. Well, love to have you back on again, Aaron, and uh, kind of dash through some of the articles, the other topics that you you cover. Um, so we appreciate your time today. Sure, happy to be here. Great. Aaron, keep writing. Thank you. <laughs> and thanks to our listeners who tuned in this week. Please do uh, subscribe to the podcast, rate us, let us know what you want to hear us talk about. And until next week, this is To The Point Cybersecurity. Thanks for joining us on the To The Point Cybersecurity Podcast, brought to you by Forcepoint. For more information and show notes from today's episode, please visit www.forcepoint.com slash govpodcast. And don't forget to subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or the Google Play Store. 